Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Saleh Amarova, professor of law at Cornell Law School. We'll be discussing her article, Private Wealth and Public Goods, A Case for National Investment Authority, and her recent white paper, Why We Need a National Investment Authority. I'll add links to both papers in the show notes for today's episode. Saleh, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's my pleasure to be here today. Sally, could you maybe introduce for the listeners this concept that you propose in these papers for a National Investment Authority, or NIA, as you call it in the paper, and I'm sure we'll call it in this conversation? And Are there any historical or contemporary models that you draw from in making that proposal? Yes, thank you. So, the original proposal for the establishment of the NIA, my colleague and co-author Bob Hockett and I made back in 2015, and then in 2018 published a paper that you so kindly referenced. And our thought at the time was that uh, the system of public finance uh, we currently have in the United States is missing a fundamental institutional element to it. So, we do have a central bank that conducts monetary policy, the Fed, we have the Treasury, that is the fiscal authority, but we don't have a separate standalone federal instrumentality that is in charge of designing and implementing a comprehensive, coherent strategy of economic development. And that's the gap that our proposed NIA is meant to fill. So the historical examples for uh, this kind of an authority are actually quite plentiful. It's just when we speak of the U.S. history in particular, we tend to forget about such precedents or not to think of them as such. Going back to Alexander Hamilton's original sort of notion of what a strong U.S. federal government would look like, in addition to the central bank, uh, the Bank of the United States and the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton actually envisioned a form of a development bank. And in fact, the first bank of the United States was meant also to fulfill in part this kind of development bank functions and operate as a form of a public-private kind of hybrid entity for those purposes. And of course, the most visible, especially in the context of the current coronavirus crisis, historic example of such an entity in the later days was the Reconstruction Finance Corporation that was established originally in 1932 under Herbert Hoover and uh, replicated the War Finance Corporation of the World War I period. And then really came into its own during the New Deal era under Franklin Delano Roosevelt's leadership, who envisioned that RFC mechanism as a very strong federal institution that was actually acting or performing the functions of the National Development Bank or National Capital Bank and stimulated the demand in the economy sufficiently and provided capital for sort of satisfying that demand. So the RFC idea was kind of forgotten for a while in the U.S. until Recently, with the onset of the coronavirus crisis, suddenly, I'm sure you've all seen various op-eds and various calls in the press for replicating the RFC model 
under various new guises, primarily to focus on uh, provision of masks and uh, hospital equipment and just generally healthcare and kind of fighting the, the pandemic that we're facing today. For example, there are calls for establishing the Health Finance Corporation, this along the lines of the RFC and so on and so forth. And in this moment, it's very easy to forget, however, that historical model of an RFC was not just about a particular subject matter, like the provision of health supplies or anything of that kind. It was actually a grand institutional design. And it's that institutional design that Bob Hockett and I, in our original paper, sought to replicate, but also to update and bring it into the 21st century and to incorporate into that design all of this sort of financial engineering knowledge and wisdom that we've gained in the intervening decades and reorient that type of institutional design toward serving the current needs of the U.S. economy that is much bigger, much more complex, and exists in that sort of much more hybrid public-private type of a context. So we see the NIA as the sort of the missing third leg of that three-legged, originally three-legged stool of public finance, in addition to the Treasury, the Fiscal Authority, the Fed, our central bank, we will need this kind of an economic development institution that is part of the system of the federal institutions of the government, but is separate and independent from both the Treasury and the Fed. And as I said, the key key mandate of the NIA would be specifically to devise a strategy of long-term economic development and growth that is sustainable in the long run and socially inclusive. That's a very important aspect of it. And the goal here is to create a structurally balanced economy and to channel the funding, both public capital and private capital, into a socially productive, publicly beneficial, and transformative public infrastructure projects that would enable the rebalancing of the U.S. economy in such a way that it is more resilient, it creates a greater number of jobs, the jobs are better, and it spreads the wealth around in a much more equitable way so as to enable greater innovation and greater growth and greater social cohesion in the long run. And the key to the NIA model is just like the RFC, it's supposed to be a true hybrid, a public-private hybrid in a fundamental way that it would not act as a a pure regulatory agency or a, a sort of a traditional government agency as we know it, but it will act directly as a market participant in financial markets alongside all of these private firms that uh, channel capital into the real economy. And it would amplify and optimize the operation of financial markets in such a way that both public money and private money actually goes into where it's most needed, not where it necessarily goes today, where it generates greater short-term profits for the suppliers, private suppliers of that capital, but where it can benefit all of us in total. That's basically the idea of the NIA. So you've updated prior institutions to serve current economic needs and the need for long-term patient capital to invest in things like infrastructure, perhaps. Could you maybe walk us through in terms of process and in market terms how the NIA would go about doing this investment activity? What would it look like structurally in the papers you mentioned that would have 
two constituent parts filling different roles. But what would that look like if we did have an NIA and how would it work? So let me walk back a little bit first, right? And just to explain the the broader kind of conceptual frame that underpins the NIA proposal. The focus of the NIA proposal is on financing large-scale public infrastructure projects understood broadly, not just the roads and bridges, but also transformative green infrastructure, you know, high-speed rails and clean energy and so on and so forth, but also, for example, educational networks for Uh, re-educating, for example, people who were displaced from their current jobs as a result of technological progress and so on and so forth. So those kinds of large-scale public infrastructure projects generally can be divided into three categories, right? One category of public infrastructure projects are the projects that generate directly monetizable public benefits, right? So through user fees, for example, the returns can be generated from building a road or building a set of power plants, clean energy plants, or so on and so forth. And then once those plants are operational, they start generating energy and there are user fees that come into into those plants' accounts. And so those user fees can be distributed to the investors, public or private investors in those types of projects. The second category is where the public benefits are monetizable potentially, but only indirectly. So certain public infrastructures, for example, don't necessarily generate user fees like toll-free roads, for instance, but they would in the longer term, increase, for example, the productivity of the regional, national, local economy and increase tax revenues or generate public savings for local, regional or national government, for example. So they can be translated into money, but only indirectly. The third category of public infrastructure projects are those projects whose benefits that accrue to the public, not monetizable, even indirectly. Those types of public infrastructure projects, for example, include nature preserves, right? public parks or science museums or things of that kind. So in those three categories of project, only the first category of public infrastructure projects, those that generate directly monetizable benefits, and only if those monetizable benefits can accrue in the relatively short term, those are the only projects that typically get financed in private capital markets by private investors because private investors are looking for privately capturable benefits returns and they cannot take the risk of tying up their money, making long-term investments and wait for those benefits to materialize because they cannot fully control the entirety of the outside economic environment. Right? So it's very hard to predict for them whether or not those kinds of expected returns can actually accrue while they're still exposed to those risks. So what needs to be done is to introduce collective agency, a public agent, into, into the mix so that the government can make it individually rational for these private investors to invest in the publicly beneficial infrastructure projects whose returns may not be monetizable in the short run, may be monetizable in the long run, may be only monetizable indirectly through generating public benefits, greater tax revenues, and so on and so forth, not even be privately monetizable without the help of the government who can create a legal entitlement to some portion of those public benefits. So that's where the NIA comes in, and that's where the NIA inserts itself as a collective agent that essentially makes patients 
in terms of capital, individually rational for private investors. So the structure that we envision is sort of, in some ways, uh, replicating um, the structure of the Federal Reserve System we have now, simply because the Federal Reserve itself is a public-private hybrid kind of system. We propose the NIA governing board or then the NIA board, which would be an independent federal agency, sort of similarly structured to the Federal Reserve Board with, let's say, seven members nominated by the president and subject to advice and consent by the Senate, serving in staggered terms and so on and so forth. So the usual kind of structure for that board. And the mandate of the NIA board would be to develop this sort of long-term economic development strategy identify certain structural imbalances in the U.S. real economy areas and sectors that need greater financing, that need perhaps a greater sort of capital investment in certain transformative projects and so on and so forth. And it would operate through at least two operating arms, each one of uh, which will be set up as a federally chartered corporation, special corporation. One we call the National Infrastructure Bank, NIB, and the other one we call the National Capital Management Corporation, NCMC, or colloquially we call it NICIMAC. So the NIB would be effectively a traditional kind of uh, lending institution whose job will be to augment the ability of public and private entities to issue bonds and raise capital by essentially buying the revenue and project bonds issued by municipalities and other public agents or by private investors in publicly beneficial infrastructure projects. So buying those bonds, securitizing those bonds, guaranteeing those bonds, and maintaining the secondary market for those bonds, that would actually augment the ability of public and private investors in infrastructure projects to raise capital and to finance more of those projects and uh, to absorb some of the risk on the public side of it. And in that sense, the NIB would operate along the familiar lines of the currently existing you know, GSEs, government-sponsored enterprises, which, by the way, are, to a large extent, the surviving descendants of the original RFC, Reconstruction Finance Corporation. So that's the NIB. The NIKIMAC is a very novel idea, in fact, and that's the idea about which I'm excited the most. NIKIMAC would actually be set up as an asset manager. In other words, it's not going to be a lot like Fannie Mae of Freddie Mac, but it's going to be a lot like a BlackRock, Blackstone kind of an entity, or, if you will, a sovereign wealth fund of some sort. Right. So what it will do, it would essentially set up a set of collective investment funds, kind of like private equity funds, and solicit private institutional investors' money to invest in those funds as passive equity investors, uh, limited partners. And itself, the NIKIMAC, the NIA's arm, will be the general partner in each of those funds. So in other words, it will be just like a regular private equity slash venture capital firm that we all know and love, except it will be a public entity. So the general partner, Nikki Mac, will solicit capital from private investors, which would be 
probably pension funds, endowments, university endowments, nonprofit, sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies who look for kind of long-term safe investments and so on and so forth. And then it will construct portfolios of public infrastructure projects for each of those funds to invest in. And in the paper, we go in detail through various design options for how those funds will be structured. But in short, the structure of the funds and how the investors are compensated will essentially mimic the existing private equity venture capital uh, firms model. So depending on the kind of uh, projects in the portfolio, some of the projects in the portfolio will be, for example, generating direct revenues through user fees, right? But some of them may not. So why would the private investors be even interested in buying limited partner interest in those Nikki Mac funds, for example, right, on my task? That's because the NIA, the Nikki Mac, being directly backed by the federal government, would be able to promise those private investors, the kinds of returns, the combination of the sort of principal return that may potentially be guaranteed up to 100% by the federal government, and a variable synthesized equity-like return that is tied to the sort of non-monetizable or not directly monetizable benefits that this public infrastructure projects will generate in future. So for example, if a, a particular fund's portfolio includes a mix of different public infrastructure projects, some of it, you know, let's say clean energy power plants networks in certain regions, on the one hand, on the other hand, maybe a set of affordable housing companies in particular regions, and maybe, uh, let's say, some nature conservation projects and financing of some public parks that may not generate any monetizable monetizable benefits in the short term. So when the time comes for the NIA or NICIMAC to wrap up and this particular fund, right, and essentially exit those investments by repaying those investors, some of these projects may actually already be profitable enough to generate enough money to channel to private investors, but some of them may only be on the way to generating those user fees. For example, those some of those power plants may not yet be profitable, right? It may be profitable 10 years ahead, but not just now. And some of these projects may never really generate user fees and not meant to generate user fees. So what to do now? Private asset manager would not be able actually to repay its private limited partners in those kinds of situations, but the public asset manager could by essentially calculating or relying on economist calculations of the overall public benefits to the economy in the future, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, seven years from now, of those public infrastructure projects in that portfolio that currently do not produce those user fees on the revenue just yet. And so let's say the economists calculate that this particular infrastructure project will increase in the next 25 years, will increase tax revenues for the local, regional, or uh, national authorities by 3%. And so today, when the private investors are expecting the return on their original investment today, the NIA, the NICIMAC, its operating arm, will actually pay them the 3% equivalent of that kind of public return that hasn't yet been materialized. So that's the sort of financial engineering, that's the synthetic element of kind of 
rewarding private investors for their participation in financing of longer-term publicly beneficial projects that otherwise do not generate privately capturable benefits today rather than waiting for those benefits to materialize tomorrow or never materialize at all. So that's how it's going to kind of work on the calculating the return side. In terms of actual sources of money for making those payments to private investors, there are a variety of exit options that we go through in the paper. Some of these projects may actually be quite ripe at that time for uh, spinning off in an IPO, right? They can be privatized because at that point, the NIA has done its job by bridging that gap in the financing so as to bring some of these large-scale infrastructure projects over the hump in terms of kind of potential profitability and survival in the future. So seven years, 10 years into that project, already there will be sufficient interest among private investors to take it on. And then, you know, from that point on, kind of to run it as private companies in that sense. So uh, some of these projects could be just sold to private investors. Some of these projects could be spun off, for example, into you know, freestanding public utilities, Tennessee Valley Authority or something like that. And uh, some of these projects may be rolled over into the next fund, right? So just like a lot of private equity funds do their work. So to the extent that the institutional investors are willing, for example, to roll their investments over into the next fund, they might actually go for it. And that's sort of how that might work. And to the extent that there may be a shortfall, for example, in the actual kind of resources of the NIA money payback to private investors today, that's where the full faith and credit of the United States has to kick in. And what will happen is either from some apportionment of the tax revenues could go into the NIA's budget specifically to plug these potential gaps in payment liabilities that the NIA incurs to private investors, its private partners along the way. One idea that we propose is to utilize the Fed's balance sheet to a greater extent in terms of basically adding kind of a, a line of credit, if you will, right, to channeling some of the Fed's investments, not just into the treasury bonds or things of that kind, but also into the issuances by the NIA and helping kind of to channel the public support into, into the NIA's activity this way. So long story short is that the NIA will effectively provide an investment opportunity to certain type of uh, large institutional investors that are currently looking for safe assets with you know, certain potentially guaranteed, federal guaranteed principal return, but also with some extra yield that they need. And the yield itself will be, because it will be synthesized to a great extent or will be capable of being synthesized by the NIA with the explicit backing of the federal government, it will create this new kind of financial instrument that would be potentially very attractive to pension funds in particular and other institutional investors of that kind. So that's an overview of broadly what the NIA would be able to do in and for the economy. You mentioned at the top of the conversation the current crisis that we are facing with COVID-19. I wonder if we could zero in and look at and talk about what the NIA could have been doing had it been in place for this crisis. How would it have helped us better respond? And does that teach us anything about how to respond to or cope with future crises? 
That's a great question. So the COVID crisis has exposed a variety of structural imbalances in our economic system and our political system, quite frankly. And, you know, the three main ones, at least in my view, are the fundamental sectoral imbalances and kind of lack of resiliency and lack of infrastructure in the real economy that we now have. Quite simply, our supply chains are extremely vulnerable to disruptions of this type. And now we find ourselves in a situation where we can't even produce you know, masks domestically, right? We have to depend on production in China, whose supply chain has been disrupted itself and so on and so forth. The second imbalance is that we see that our financial system is not really very efficient or effective in channeling and mobilizing the capital, even publicly, congressionally appropriated money, channeling that money into the real economy exactly where it's needed in order to prevent sort of the greater economic fallout and potentially even a repeat of the Great Depression a hundred years later. Our financial system just operating through this sort of middle layer of privately owned banks and other financial institutions just seems to kind of Uh, suffer from a lot of glitches in that sense. And the the third structural imbalance that COVID crisis really exposed is the gaps in government capacity. We see that there is no single coordinating entity that would bring together the oversight of concerted federal, state, and local efforts to address both the imbalances in the production in the supply chain that we're currently experiencing and the imbalances in sort of the financing channels, right? So we only have the Fed and the Treasury. And so Congress appropriated trillions of dollars in emergency relief. And the Fed is essentially now is setting up a variety of has set up and trying to get off the ground and start operating several facilities for lending, sending money into the real economy. And we are seeing how that stretches the Fed's legal mandate and creates all kinds of institutional problems whose longer term implications we are yet to see. So if we had an RFC type NIA in place, then that institution would have been the focal point, the single institutional platform for coordinating and organizing the government's response to the needs of the real economy, the needs of the people, the needs of the companies, businesses out there who are suffering from the lockdown and all of its fallout on the one hand, and also the needs apparent in the financial system for sort of creating the channels right, through which the financial system can kick in and actually serve its intended social function of channeling the money into the real economy. So in a very short kind of brief memo that you've so kindly referenced in the beginning, why we need the National Investment Authority, I try to kind of bring up the idea of the NIA to the current crisis moment and see how it could serve as the focal point for, for example, managing the crisis emergency relief measures or bailouts, as they're colloquially known, in a more effective and more publicly accountable, democratically accountable way. Because the NIA will have been already an operating agency with its own mandate, with all kinds of democratic accountability mechanisms built into its operation, it would have been much easier to sort of ramp up and scale up those kinds of accountability mechanisms to make sure, for example, that the emergency relief process is managed in such a way that it's not 
skewed toward only large corporations that already have pre-existing relationships with big banks to get first dibs on uh, the bailout money, for example, right? Then I would I would have, for example, in place the structure for conducting public auctions in a way f- for applications for the relief, for instance, right? And those public auctions would be conducted pursuant to clear, clearly articulated guidelines and policies that the NIA would follow in terms of what criteria to apply to certain applications for emergency relief, right? And very importantly, what form that relief would take. So currently, the only form that the emergency relief is taking is through loans. If you're lucky enough as a business to apply and get a loan, what you get is perhaps an ability to kind of plug your immediate liquidity problem. But once the crisis subsides slightly, three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, you are likely to find yourself overburdened with increased debt service, right? And there is already a lot of discussion right now among scholars and policymakers about what to do when the economy emerges out of this crisis, even more leveraged than it was before the crisis. And what will happen with the inevitable wave of increased bankruptcies and the bankruptcy courts being overwhelmed. So one way, of course, to avoid this kind of back-end huge problem, structural problem that is likely to linger and become a chronic problem in many ways for the U.S. economy, one way to avoid it would have been to structure the emergency relief, to structure these quote-unquote bailouts as equity investments as opposed to just loans. And here the problem is that, you know, the Treasury is reluctant to become uh, an equity shareholder. The Fed clearly is not set up to become an equity shareholder in a wide variety of real economy companies that need those capital injections. So the NIA would have been, as an asset manager, already the naturally set up expert asset manager, expert type of a public entity to play that role of an equity investor in various real economy enterprises. And one way the NIA could do it, certainly not the only way, would be to operate through a particular type of an equity investment instrument in private companies, the golden share. So the golden share mechanism is actually a well-known mechanism, but again, just like the RFC, well-forgotten mechanism as well. Back in the 1980s, when there was a wave of privatizations of state-owned enterprises in Europe, particularly in the UK, Margaret Thatcher's government made wide use of the golden share that it retained in previously state-owned enterprises it privatized uh, for the purpose of keeping control over certain fundamental corporate decisions of these newly privatized but strategically important companies like British Gas, British Petroleum, and so on and so forth. The idea originally behind those golden shares was to prevent essentially foreign takeovers of these strategically important enterprises. But the instrument itself is very flexible and it would give the sovereign shareholder, a very wide range of potential powers, but contingent powers to interfere or intervene into the corporate governance and management, business management of a company, otherwise privately run company. In those situations and only in those situations when the public interest dictates such a kind of correction to the course of this company's management. So if, let's say, a particular corporation is a recipient of a large 
public emergency bailout package in the COVID crisis, right? Instead of putting a loan, a huge loan on its balance sheet, it would put in its equity, kind of uh, on the equity side of its balance sheet, this new interest, the golden share by the federal government, with a particular set of primarily management rights, right? That would be contingent and would uh, spring into action only in terms of kind of making sure the private company that was a recipient of those public funds in the emergency situation actually complies with the conditions of that bailout. So the conditions that I suggested in that short memo that I wrote about it might include things like, for example, limitations on dividends or large-scale stock buybacks, right, for a set period of time, for example. It could also be uh, certain limitations on excessive executive compensation or various other limitations are considered necessary in the process of apportioning the emergency relief. So the golden share would effectively put the NIA representative on the board of the recipient corporation, but as that special director on that board, the golden shareholder, the NIA in this situation, would effectively be performing simply monitoring function, right? Like just the monitoring and information gathering function with respect to how the conditions of the bailout are complied with. And only if the corporation is doing something that is clearly contradicting the conditions of that emergency relief, like, for example, decided to increase the bonuses to the executive officers, but also cut its workforce or otherwise sort of take the action that would be inconsistent with the public interest in the long run. Only then the golden share would kick into action. And then the director, the special golden share shareholder director, the NIA, will actually get this sort of extra voice in changing the course of this particular corporation and perhaps blocking that kind of a decision and making sure that the corporation doesn't doesn't violate the conditions of the bailout quite so flagrantly. So that's the sort of the golden share proposal that is also laid out in prior work that you know we have out there. Sally, what closing thoughts would you have for listeners about this conversation and these papers? I think the key here is to open our minds and start thinking about the possibility of an institutional reform that would create an institution like the NIA that would act as this hybrid private-public development authority in a way and will help to channel a privately abundant capital and public capital into the types of public infrastructure projects that will really help us to reconstruct, recover, and take into the future our economy. And all of these great challenges of our times today that we have with the climate change and the need to create a cleaner, greener economy with the social inequality and economic inequality, with the fact that a lot of our wealth is not being distributed properly, the unemployment and all of these challenges that are created, the economic, political and social challenges that are created as a result of inequality, all of which are greatly exacerbated by the current COVID crisis. In order to tackle all of those problems at once. Perhaps we cannot come up with a single silver bullet, but we really need to start debating seriously an institutional solution that would make it more likely that we'll be able to solve those problems in the long run. And the NIA is one such solution that I strongly believe in. Our guest today has been Sally Amarova, professor of law at Cornell Law School. 
We've discussed her article, Private Wealth and Public Goods, A Case for a National Investment Authority, and her recent white paper, Why We Need a National Investment Authority. I links to both papers in the show notes for the episode. Sally, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.